So I open up, go to Acts chapter 13, because uh, we are going through the book of Acts in a, in a topical style. It is usually our practice to go line by line through books like this, and it is, of course, my, my constant temptation to stop doing this and just start picking it apart word by word and line by line. But for the sake of brevity, and so that we might get a, a good, uh, a broad scope broad spectrum, uh, zoomed out view of the book of Acts for ourselves, sort of, uh, sort of as a, 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 the book of Acts in a shot glass, that's what we've done. Uh, uh, for, for, for about 10 weeks, what we're doing is put, looking at the book of Acts and saying, as God's inspired volume of church history, that is empower, empowered and powerful, but not complete. The, the work of God in his church is still going, and we are a part of that. However, we have been given one volume of spirit-inspired church history, and that is the book of Acts. And it's incumbent on us to ask, as a church on mission, we will only be able to be our most effective as we understand the plays that God is running. We will only be able to be at our most obedient and in, in sync and in step with the Holy Spirit of mission when we are aware of what precise things and actions and tasks and tools God himself uses as he builds his church. Because we understand primarily, the end, and first of all, that we are not the main active uh, uh, contributors in the task of the mission of the gospel. We are very active in our own sense as we are empowered by the Spirit. But friends, it is not actually within our power to build the church. It is not within our power to save people's souls. It is not within our power to extend the kingdom of Christ. That is primarily and only God's ability. He is the one who is on mission. He is the one who is saving people. He is the one who's building his church. Jesus himself said that. He's the one giving to his son Jesus a kingdom. So what's our part? If I've just proved to you that we need to do absolutely nothing because God does everything, what is our part? What is our part is that we are called to be instruments and tools and weapons in the hands of God. And therefore, if we do not understand what the church ought to do and has done in the past under the Spirit of God, then we will not be able to be faithful instruments in his hands. So Acts chapter 13 is where we'll be starting today as we ask the question and study the topic of world missions of missions in and from the local church. We've looked at preaching, we've looked at fellowship, the miracles done by God, persecution sent by God, the providence of God's invisible hand behind the scenes. We've looked at evangelism, and today we're looking at missions. Now in a broad sense, and we'll define terms soon, but in a broad sense, we have been looking at the mission of the church, or how she does her mission every single week. All of that is a part of the mission of the church, preaching the gospel, establishing groups of that, that fellowship, seeing God do miracles, relying on his providence, all of those things, being persecuted, evangelizing. That's all how we accomplish our mission. But today we are looking at missions, a, a term that is specifically set apart to mean a particular Thing. So look at Acts chapter 13, and we'll read the first four verses, and over the, next, over the sermon we'll sort of pull apart sections of 13 and into chapter 14. Acts chapter 13, hear now the word of the one true living God. 
Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch. Take that, Herod. We saved one of your workers. The, uh, the, the uh, uh, Manaean, the member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst today. Well, right here we see some very important elements of missions. Missions, we're going to do what we did last week with evangelism. We need to say and ask ourselves, what is missions not? Okay, what is missions not? Because there is all sorts of things that are funded as missions that, that different churches and groups will do missions, bake sales to raise money for. They will send people in order to do missions on account of that is not by the, by the furthest stretch of the spirit-living imagination, anything akin to biblical missions. Right? And one of them, one of them is, is, a, is a, a, a form of missions that says, or <laughs> calls itself missions, and what they do is they say, missions in its most pure and powerful form is when a Christian, probably a couple, maybe a single person, a couple of people, whatever, Christians get up, leave the country, go to an unchurched area, there you go. How good's that? Okay, uh, sorry. And what? What are they doing once they get? Well, that's the beauty. They just they just live. They just live like Christians. And they're these, they're these secret sleeper agents that are there, and the church is funding them. And what they do is they just they go about their, their business. You know, they read their Bible privately, they they do their groceries, but with a Christian smile. And what they do is they and, and this is just the error that we looked at last week of, of niceness evangelism applied to world missions. That they think that if you just go into an unchurched area, the spirit will eventually bring bring I don't know what they expect, but it's not missions. Okay, I've met these people, I've heard them argue for it. There's no argument for it. It's not biblical missions to just be somewhere and be a Christian. But it goes a bit further. Some people say what missions is, is when the church pools funds, gets some people, usually college students, sends them over to a poor area. They take lots of selfies handing out food. They'll visit orphans and they'll build something for the people there in some way. They're doing really good works Except the fact, this is one of my number one arguments to this, probably if we just sent some cash, the local workers could have built those things better than the college students who don't really know how to even plug in most of the appliances in their house. I'm just going to put that out there. It's probably not good work, but anyway, it's not missions when we take people, send them to simply do good works in other countries. Now, that's good stuff to do. Go and do it. Those who are gifted and skilled and can fund all sorts of uh, uh, humanitarian work in other nations, don't hear me saying not to do that, but please don't call that New Testament missions. It is not even when we go and simply visit and encourage Christians in other countries. That is not yet missions. In a broad, full-bodied sense, here's my, here's my working definition for this morning. Biblical missions is this. It is the task of the local church by which they send people into less-reached nations to preach the gospel plant churches, and train disciples into all righteousness 
until all the families of the earth give glory to God. Now we're going to work with that definition and break it up bit by bit as we go through because every part of that is intentionally worded and derived from the Bible. So first of all, let us establish that in missions, it is ultimately God's mission. It is, the reason that there is a mission to do, the reason that there is a, 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 a theological, even practical basis for doing this thing that we call missions is because the God who has created us and sent his son into the world is a missionary God. We, we've looked every week. We've looked at preaching, at fellowship, at miracles, at providence, at persecution. There's another one, at evangelism. And the formal basis of all of those things in our practical theology is in fact that they represent the image of God and are found in his commandments. Our God is a preaching God. He is a God in triune fellowship. He is a sovereign God working through his providence. He is a working God who glorifies himself through miraculous things. He is a saving God and so we do evangelism. He is a sending God and therefore he is a missionary God for he sent himself in the person of his own son to the world to redeem the world. And he is a God who accomplishes his mission of redemption in this world. He is a God with a mission. He is a God uh, uh, enacting out that mission. And he is a God who absolutely will accomplish his mission. Now we make a couple of distinctions. <coughs> God's mission, or what we call the mission of God, is to glorify himself by saving his people and reconciling all things to himself through the cross of his son. God's mission is to glorify himself by saving his people, reconciling all of the lost creation to himself through the cross of his son. And he accomplishes that through what theologians call many proximate actions and tasks. In other words... Not, this, this is pretty obvious, but, but not everything that God does in reaching his mission is the mission itself, right? We, we know this. God, God slew the Canaanites. That does not mean that his big mission, the end goal in, his, in, in, in the world was in order to destroy the Canaanites or the Egyptians or things like that, okay? He, he has all sorts of proximate ends and tasks that he accomplishes on the way to establishing and accomplishing his ultimate purpose and mission. Then uh, uh, something that we distinguish from that is the mission of the church. God is on mission to reconcile all things through the blood of his son's cross to himself. The mission of the church flows from and participates in God's mission, but is not identical to God's mission. We are nowhere told, reconcile all things to the Father through the cross. It's just not quite the distinct thing we are commanded to do. What we are commanded to do, though it is in line with God's mission, it's an essential part of God's mission, it's an infallible part of God's mission, he will make sure we succeed, but it is this, to make disciples of people in every nation, through the preaching of the gospel and establishing multiplying churches. That's our job. 
But, but we will do that poorly if we don't see that as, as integrated in and flowing out of the mission of God to, to reconcile all things to himself. And now we distinguish one more thing, and this is where we'll stick ourselves the rest of the day. Rest of the day, if you can bear it, or just the rest of the sermon. We'll see how we go. Is the definition of missions itself in the local church. What is missions and this is, is one of the ways that the church makes disciples in every nation. How do we make disciples in every nation? Through the preaching of the gospel and establishing planting churches. One of them, one of the very important ways, is our definition for this morning, that the local church sends people to, reach, to, to less reached nations where they preach the gospel, plant churches, and train disciples into all righteousness until all the families of the earth give glory to God. So let's start picking out that, uh, that definition and working it out, and most importantly, seeing how it is grounded in the Bible, specifically today, the book of Acts chapter 13 through 14. So go back to verse 1 in Acts chapter 13. As we look at the first part of this definition, that it is the task, missions, world missions, is the task of the local Church. <clears throat> Acts chapter 13 and 14 make up what we call the first missionary journey of Paul. The following chapters include the second missionary journey and then the third missionary journey of Paul uh, in the book of Acts. But the, the, the first missionary journey happens from Acts chapter 13. Now look at this. As we, we argue the fact that world missions is the task of each local church. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the first part of this understanding of world missions, to be done properly, is that people have to be going from a starting church. They have to be going from a local church. So we see this right in that first verse, that what the whole, the, 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 where the Holy Spirit goes in order to set people apart is to men who were in a local church. They were in the church of Antioch already serving as prophets and teachers. They would have been pastors. Here we see that they were particularly gifted with the gift of prophecy, no, by no means a normative part of being a pastor. Yet they were prophets in that age. They were teachers and they were pastors already in a local church. It is not that they had had a call on missions to their life and so neglected the local church because they were called to missions. Local church is really good for all of the normal Christians who have not been called to a cross-cultural uh, task in their life. So you're going to stay here for good, therefore you're a part of a local church. But missionaries, those who have a call, go to, I don't know, other groups. They, they just don't go to church. Now we see that these men were in the church of Antioch and they went from that church. It is so essential for any missionary on the field in another nation to have a sending church. There's uncountable amounts of people out there who are rogue missionaries. They're in every sense not a true missionary because they were not sent by anybody. You cannot send yourself. You cannot. That, that, that's a contradiction in terms. To be sent requires a distinct second party to be able 
to send. I know we're doing basic rudimentary logic here today. But if we meet people on the field who simply say, I don't have a sending church. I didn't come from a local church. I I just got saved. I decided local church wasn't for me. I, I go about and reach the nations on my own. That is unbiblical and in no way New Testament and after the formulation of Paul. Missions, this is one of the the deep convictions of the Reformed Church and this Reformed Church, Hope Reformed Baptist Church, is that missions is essentially, is local church-centered. Missions is local church-oriented. Every missionary ought to be sent from a local church, and we see next that you are ultimately sent by a local church. So look at verse look at verse 2. It's quite interesting that it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit, okay, in the church, if there was to be any voice, any one vote, any declaration that carries absolute and ultimate authority, it is the voice of the Holy Spirit. And it says here that the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work. It's interesting, isn't it, that the Holy Spirit doesn't just speak to Saul and Barnabas and tell them, get out from among them and go go to the nations. Rather, it is the church as a whole that is told by the authoritative voice of the Holy Spirit, you set apart some of your members for the work I've called them. Even now, the Holy Spirit is not, he is not uh, 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 blasting apart or doing without the normal authority structures that are built into the local church. He he honors the very design that he himself inspired. He says, to the authority, to the body of the local church, set aside for me these people. He does not simply call them out from their midst. So yes, the Holy Spirit sent them, but instrumentally they were sent by the church. They were sent by the church, but we still see in verse 4 that that when the church sends out individuals, we can still say that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. We see this in Acts chapter 20 in another setting when Paul is talking to men that have been made overseers and elders by the church, all right, the church has voted, laid their hands on, and set aside those men. Then Paul later on will say that they are men made overseers by the Holy Spirit. We need to remove this, this false and very modern dichotomy where the Holy Spirit does the really exciting stuff, like call me to missions and send me and empower me, and the local church does all the ordinary, maybe even boring stuff. There's, there's missionaries all over the place, maybe, maybe young people filled with zeal and not much else, or maybe it's people filled with zeal and not much knowledge who think that, that the ultimate way to be sent by the church is just by the Holy Spirit. Uh, sorry, not sent by the church, but sent to missions is just by the Holy Spirit. Just give me the vision, give me the voice, call on me, God. Give, give, me, a, give me a move in a youth group camp and, and I will then go. And it's always, it always adds to the missionary story if they can say that they went despite the local church. You know, I put it to my pastors, I spoke to the people around me, I'm called to missions, I'm going to go take the gospel. And, and every single wise, spirit-filled person in my life told me, you shouldn't do that, you can't do that, you're irresponsible, we don't trust you with five bucks of the church cash, don't do it. But here I am, here I am, the Lord has evidently sent me. No, it, does, it, it is only ever a detriment to the testimony of a missionary if they are sent despite the local 
church. They must be sent from a local church, by the local church, and then we also see they are accountable to the local church. Is a missionary, like every pastor, is he and is his family and are those with him, are they all accountable to the Holy Spirit? Absolutely they are. Absolutely a pastor is accountable first and foremost to the God who will judge us and bring us to account. And yet, instrumentally, missionaries, even the Apostle Paul, was accountable to a local church. So go back to, uh, sorry, go further into Acts chapter 14 and verse 26. (coughs) This is the end of their missionary journey. They go back to their sending church, the church of Antioch in Syria, and here is what 26 says. And from there they sailed back to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the, they gathered the church together, they g- declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Where a church funds and supports and ordains and sends out one of their numbers, it is then to that church, the, the, the story's not over yet, it is to that church that the missionary remains accountable as their sending body as they're sending elders and membership. Church is so essential to the task of missions, and this is something almost entirely forgotten in modern and postmodern missionary movements and tasks. So this is the first part argued for in our, in our definition of missions today, which is that it is the task of the local church to send people into less-reached nations to preach the gospel, plant churches, train disciples in all righteousness until all the families of the earth give glory to God. So let's go to the second part, which is this, that it is the task of the local church to send people into less reached or unreached nations or areas. It is the task of the local church to send people into less reached nations. That is That is that we should be aiming every single local church, no matter how small, no matter how new, no matter how old, no matter how poor, should be asking God for the faith and the resources to not just send money, not just send things, but send people, spirit-filled people into one of the areas, nations, and groups around the globe that do not yet have an overwhelming Christian influence in their midst. It It is our task to think plan and pray about how to send people. Every local church ought to be trying to send missionaries into these much-needed areas to embody the Christian life and speak Christian truth, things that funding and, and, and simple resources like books cannot do. They cannot do a, an embodiment of the Christian family, an embodiment of the Christian lifestyle through the lived out example in the missionary. That is why people are so important to send. But we've also said here that they should be sent to less reached nations. The Joshua Project is by no means inspired, but a helpful sort of a organization out there that help gives statistics and understandings and definitions to certain areas of, uh, of missiology, this understanding of, of world missions. And one of the things that they do is that they collate uh, and, and put into uh, available statistics, you can go and find them online, the amount of Christians 
and the percentage of every population of Christians in the whole world, in every nation, and more than that, and this becomes important for our understanding about modern-day missions, is every people group. Because we'll be, we'll be too blinded uh, uh, and naive as we look at world missions if we only think in terms of geopolitical nations. Because if we simply think of somewhere we've been before as a church, like Myanmar, Myanmar has within it hundreds of lesser and smaller people groups. And, and a people group is someone, either they have a different language or they have different culture, different, different cultural customs and different things like that. And so it's, it's simply naive to say, well, Burma's been reached, the whole of Myanmar has now been reached, but rather we need to think more specifically about people groups. And as we said, unreached or less reached people groups. Here's how the Joshua Project defines an unreached or least reached people group. An unreached or least reached people group is a people group among which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize their people group without outside assistance. So, so it's, a, it's, it's a people group of which the, the Christians are usually somewhere between 0 and 2% of the population, and they don't have enough resources, education, money, a number of churches. They don't have enough pastors and trainers within their churches to be able to start evangelizing and multiplying churches on their own, yet they still lean heavily on the work of sending uh, churches from other richer, more resourced, more well-taught, more established Churches. I don't just mean white Western churches. I mean whatever answers that need. The resourced, the equipped, the trained, the learned, and the willing. So, And I, I, I simply bring in that definition because that, that's how I use the word unreached. Uh, uh, less reached is just an area or a people group that has less Christians and less Christianization than maybe we might be used to, where, where Christians are persecuted, the name of Christ is not widely known. But unreached is specifically those people with less than 2% of their population being Christian. And as we stand today, there is 4 billion, that's 4 billion, a half of the world's population at present that are in the category of superficially reached, which is barely reached, all the way down to absolutely unreached, no reported Christians among them. That is to say, if tonight was the night that Christ himself had ordained by, by his Father sending to return and bring about the final judgment, we would see an unending a wave of souls swept over into hell to the number of four billion, half the world's population now judged in their sin. It is, it is, it is, it is four billion others or, 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 or uh, uh, three, uh, the, the rest of the, the earth's population at whatever point in history, it's the rest that not, are not necessarily Christian, don't hear us saying that, but live within a people group that have easy enough access to the gospel. And so we see that while every single geopolitical uh, uh, nation at present has at least some Christians within them, it is not the case that everybody lives within the reach or the hearing of the preached gospel, and therefore the task is by no means completed. Missions should not be done to more reached areas. I, I don't have a lot of time for supporting missionaries who come here from, say, Colorado. 
or come to, to the, to the under. It's, it's a little bit of an insult for me as a pastor when somebody comes to me and says, I'm here, I've been sent by, uh, by the lovely church in California to come and reach, reach this place called Logan. I say, you go back, you guys need help. Thank you very much. Or go to Melbourne, they need help. But, but we, got, we got it here. I, I think missions should, as, it's, as a general rule and as it's uh, lean, should always be hoping and planning to send people to less reached areas than the area that is doing the sending. And so we see this in the book of Acts here, chapter 13 and 14, that Paul and Barnabas were sent out and they went from a, from a church that was fairly unique at its time uh, up to the, the north of the land strip of Israel, a little bit further, just before you get to the main continent of, of what they called Asia, what we would call Turkey, and, 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 and moving towards Greece and the rest of Europe. What you had there was this church, Antioch, which was where there was first uh, uh, a, a good mix of Jewish and Gentile Christians. And, and it was there that, that these people were sent off from to go and establish for the first ever time, a purely Gentile church. Not, not, not that that was their aim, that they would exclude the Jews that were among the nations, but, but that they were doing what has not been done before, which is going to purely Gentile nations by identity and going intentionally to them. Not, not like in Antioch where there happened to be non, uh, non-Jews that we, we evangelize. There happened to be Jews, so here we go. But intentionally, believing that it was the next phase in God's plan, they went to unreached Gentile nations. This was a, this was a great next phase in the kingdom of God spreading. So in chapter 13, from verse 4 through 12, we see that they went... Uh, moving uh, uh, westward across the map, they went to, and a little bit south and whatnot, uh, they went to Seleucia, and then they went to the island of Cyprus, then they went, uh, uh, and, and, and they went through those, those areas. Uh, verse 13, we see the end, that they returned back to, uh, uh, they went through Pisidia, and then they went back to Antioch, their own sending church. Uh, invert, uh, sorry, I've stuffed that up. Pisidia was an area where there was another city called Antioch, not their sending church, Antioch. So they went to there. And then they went further to Iconium, Lystra, and then after that ended up returning home to Antioch. All of these areas were unreached. They did not have churches. They had not heard of the name of Jesus. So that is where they went. So that's the practice of what they did. But it's so interesting, and I love doing this as we look into chapter 13 you actually see the sermon that Paul himself preached in Antioch of Pisidia. The sermon that he preached has within it his own motivations for doing Gentile missions. He actually explains and he he tells them why he's doing what he's doing in going further than simply his own kinsmen and his own nation, going to the other nations to reach them. We see this in chapter 13, verse 47 and 48. As he's preaching in a synagogue, <coughs> and the Jews get all kinds of riled up and do not appreciate what he is saying about their, their Messiah, that it was for, he was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He says there in verse 47, as he's saying, I'm going to start going to the Gentiles more specifically, more focused, that's why we came He says that, he says, verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us. This is what he means. This is what the Holy Spirit meant at the beginning of chapter 13 when he said, Set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work 
I've called them to. This is the work. This, is his, he says, is what we have been commanded to do by the Lord. And he quotes the book of Isaiah, which says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, verse 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many of them as had been appointed to eternal life believed. We have here Paul's own God-given mission statement to him as a missionary, which was to the, uh, uh, his specific call had been that Jesus has now, in this next phase of redemptive history, he has now broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and as he says in Ephesians, has now created one new man, the man Jesus, and in him are all nations. He has... He has booted down the door that once held Gentiles at arm's reach to God's saving purposes. And now Paul has been beckoned by Jesus to sprint through that door and bring many, many Gentiles into God's saving purposes. Israel-only salvation or Israel-specific salvation was not the next part of God's redemption. That had been a part of God's redemptive plan, but as we said, God's mission entails things that are not themselves the mission. Yes, he had set apart one nation. That was not his ultimate glorious end. That was a, an essential, beautiful part of his mission. But the mission would be that from that one nation and through that nation would come the blessings to every family, every nation on earth as Isaiah had prophesied and as Paul now saw himself as fulfilling that prophecy. Every time the church takes up their resources, takes up somebody who is called and qualified and sends them to less reached places. We need to see that we are in part fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, which in hope and in vagueness, he prophesied by the Spirit saying, there will be a day when the door to the Gentiles is swung open. There will be servants who take up the word of the Lord and run it to those Gentile nations so that to the ends of the earth, salvation will go. There will be a light for the Gentiles that they may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. World missions, by the sending of a local church, is, the, is fulfilling this and engaging in this next phase of God's redemptive plan through his son, Jesus Christ, that the nations, every last one of them, would be filled with people brought into the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Paul saw that a part of the church's mission, which is to ensure that she sends missionaries to less reached nations, was a fulfillment of the prophecy given by the king. Romans 15, let's go there. Romans 15, as we see Paul actually putting to writing another few sentences and a whole bunch of other quotations that he gives, he puts into writing again what motivates him in his missionary zeal and work. Romans 15, verse 9 to 12. <coughs> Let's start in verse 8, Romans 15, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness 
in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. He's not coming up with a new idea. He's not claiming a fresh revelation from God that now he wants to reach the nations. He's saying to his Jewish brothers and sisters, had we but read, we would have expected the nations beyond our own to receive their king, Jesus Christ. He says, as it is written. And then he rattles off four Old Testament quotes. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. That sounds like the Gentiles will hear the gospel. Verse 10, and again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That sounds like the nations are worshipping the God of Israel. Verse 11, and again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. That sounds like the Gentiles are calling on the same God as the writer of that text, who is a Jew. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the nations, the Gentiles, hope. Verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. He used that word twice, hope. hope. This is the hope of the Old Testament. This is the hope now of the Christian missionary that God has for, from, all, from the beginning of the ages ordained that all of the nations would hear the gospel and that is what world missions joins in on. It is a part of every local church's job to see that God has planned and prophesied and promised that the nations will hear the gospel and give praise to Jesus, the self-same Messiah that saves the Jews, also saves every Messiah, and therefore with that theological promise of God, that, that certainty in our bones, we send people to the nations. Missions is primarily going to the less reached and the unreached to fulfill God's global purpose of getting himself glory by ushering the Gentile peoples into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what missions is. So we've seen, it's local church based. It is the task of sending people to unreached nations. But now, let's also see that the specific task we do in those nations is to preach the gospel, plant churches, and train disciples into all righteousness. It is not primarily humanitarian work. It is not primarily evangelism without reference to a local church. It is not primarily the establishing of arms of parachurch organizations. It's not their job. We're not starting headquarters of parachurch organizations. We are planting local churches. Let's see, it is preaching the word, planning churches, and discipling the people into all righteousness. We see this. Look at verse, back into chapter 13 of Acts, and we're going to do a, a quick sweep through the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas and see how central it was to them that they preached the gospel. The first part of missionary work, having been sent by the local church, is to preach the gospel. Verse 5 in Acts chapter 13. When they arrived at Salamis, uh, Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God. They proclaimed the word of God. Look at chapter 14, verse 3. 
So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace. When they speak the word of God, when they speak the word of the Lord, we hear here another way to define that, the word of his grace. Look at verse 19 of chapter 14. It says, but the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. That's not the verse I'm looking for, but we'll keep reading. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, that's the one I was after, they preached the gospel to that city after being left for dead by their persecutors. And then in, uh, go back to chapter six, uh, sorry, chapter 13. And now we'll look at the sermon specifically that Paul gives <coughs> here from verse 16 through 41. We, we won't read the whole thing. But in this is he's telling them the story of the, in the synagogue to the Jews, he's telling them that, that all of these prophecies... The, the whole flow of the Old Testament history, if you read it, has led to this decisive moment when God fulfilled his prophecies. He sent his Messiah in the person and the work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who went before him, who took our sin upon his shoulders and died. And look at verse, specifically uh, verse 27. He recounts the truth. He says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, because they did not know their own scriptures, they fulfilled the prophecies by condemning the Messiah. Verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, that is, again, they fulfilled all the prophecies. <laughs> As they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as he also wrote in the second psalm. This is what was on their lips everywhere they went, and this is the good news that the church now carries explicitly to proclaim in less-reached nations that God has created the world and in response to our sin condemned the world, that every single person of every single race and every single background, religious or cultural, is born and lives and dies under the just and righteous condemnation of God, and they face nothing but the punishment of that just condemnation after they die. That because they are born in sin, and they love to sin, and they live their life sinning against the one true, thrice holy God, therefore he gives to them what they deserve at their death, which is an eternal torment in hell. But, he has said, but... To the Jewish nation, God had been giving promises and prophecies that one day he himself would join him, 
join his people, would join this earth, and through his work, he would bring about salvation and forgiveness from sins. And so what Paul proclaimed then, what the church has proclaimed since, and what we proclaim today, is that Jesus Christ was not just a prophet, a good man, or a teacher. He was not just a philosopher, a good worker, or a humanitarian. He was God in flesh. God, God spans that gap between himself and us. He spans the gap between his holiness and our sinfulness by becoming man. And not just coming man to be worshipped, walk around, show himself off. He came to die, and that he did on Calvary. He came, and though he lived perfectly, he carried our sin on his shoulders before the Father and was punished with the same punishment we deserved. And then, being And having completed the payment, God raised him from the dead as a sure sign to every person to ever live that judgment will come and that God is just. He will punish sin and that all the sin of those who believe has been wiped out in the work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, every nation, every person, every individual is commanded by God to repent, lay down your arms, lay down your self-righteousness, stop your sinful lifestyle and flee to Jesus by faith and you will, by the simple act of trusting his finished work, you will be saved. You will be saved. This was the message of Paul that he preached. This is the, the, the message that every missionary must carry. If they do not do that, they are not missionaries. If they do it, and from there, plant churches and train disciples, then they can call themselves missionaries. So the next point here is that after preaching the gospel and making converts or making disciples as commanded in the Great Commission, then those missionaries ought to organize these converts, organize these followers of Jesus into worshiping bodies so that they can be taught the faith and taught how to live through the word of God. And this is exactly what we see Paul and Barnabas do at the end of their missionary journey. Go to Acts chapter 14 and verse 21 through 23. It was not sufficient for them to have preached the gospel in a bunch of places and then been persecuted out of cities. They then went back to those cities to ensure that churches were established and that those disciples made a good head start on their being trained into righteousness. So verse 21, when they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to, to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Two essential parts there. The preaching of the gospel and making disciples, and now the going back and training them into all righteousness and starting them off on a good way in the Christian life. And then verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It's so very simple. The, the missionaries go, they preach the gospel, they see converts, and then they must organize those Christians into bodies of worshiping people called churches, and all true churches will have elders over them to both teach and to maintain order and discipline in the life of the church. That is central to the task of the church's mission. So 
as we remind ourselves, the, 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 church, the, the definition of missions that we're working with today as we go to the last uh, uh, closing point, it is that God would be glorified through the local church setting itself to the task of sending people into less reached nations to preach the gospel, plant churches, and train disciples into all righteousness until all the families of the earth give glory to God. This is the, this is the expectation of missions, that we do this until, and we do this with the view that all the families of the nations of the earth will have people within them and will be shining a light among them, giving glory to God through their worship, their righteous lives, and their witness. Psalm chapter 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. In history, while nations still exist and other kings exist, Jesus will be above them and bringing people from all of them into his church. Psalm 89 verse 8, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord. None are there any works like you. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Is that a wondrous, unthinkable, unimaginable thing that you haven't even dared yourself to imagine or hope for as you pray, thy kingdom come? Well, here it is, the reminder. God is a God that does wondrous things. He alone is God. He alone can bring this about. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see his salvation, this salvation of our God. That is the conviction of the missionary. That all the ends of the earth will, in some measure, to some degree, what exactly it will look like, I could not tell you. But every family of every nation will, having been created by God and controlled by God and governed by God, will be saved by God. There will be worshipping Christians and churches among every family of the nations. Here's some ending exhortations. One from William Carey. From the late 1700s into the 1800s, this was a man who gave his life to the missionary work. And he, sent, he, uh, he went into India and did a lot of good work. However, in the early years, he had to argue the English church into a mindset that missions even mattered. This is taken from a story about him. Carrie believed that it was the responsibility of Christians to take the gospel message to those who had not heard it. Imagine that. That's a, that's, a, that's a pretty cool idea, Mr. Carey. It was fairly new in his day. Or at least that had been lost. The, the Christians to take the gospel message to those who had not heard it, especially among the nations. And many, uh, many believed that that command had died off with the apostles. The Great Commission was given to them. They're dead. Now we just thank God we were born in a Christian nation. At a meeting of the Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, William Carey, a newly ordained minister, stood up and argued for the value of overseas missions. He was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, 
Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases himself to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. How very pious and holy is this guy who doesn't pretend that God has spoken to us in his word, commanding us to do just that. He was met with all kinds of hesitations and reluctance and resistance like this, arguing that that's no longer our job to do. God will save people. He's sovereign. You're a Calvinist, aren't you, William Carey? Well, he wrote a book called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. That was his book. And in it, he argued that Jesus' great commission applied to all Christians of that time, and he castigated and rebuked fellow believers of his day for ignoring it. Then he went into India and saw Bibles translated, churches started, and thousands saved by the Spirit of God. He wrote in that book, Multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. That was a conviction that we want to embody and send people with from this church. Jim Elliott, he was another one in the 1950s. Some of you may even remember his life and his story. His wife, Elizabeth Elliott, living far into even our own generation. He was killed by being speared to death at the young age, uh, in his 20s somewhere, when he and some of his mates landed in Ecuador in order to try and penetrate the tribe with the gospel. Get into, get it. They didn't even make it past the tree line or out of the water. They got off their boats and they died as the seawater around them pooled with their blood, having been pierced by spears. Before he died, having been also like Carrie, encouraged very holily, very, very piously, don't go, that's dangerous and stupid. Jim Elliott said this, we are harmless Christians, and therefore we are unharmed. We're spiritual pacifists, not militants. We are conscientious objectors in this battle to the death with principalities and powers in the high places. Meekness must be had for our interactions with men. But brass, outspoken boldness is required to take part in the camaraderie of the cross. We're all, we're all just sideliners, coaching and criticizing the real wrestlers while content to sit by and leave the enemies of God unchallenged. The world cannot hate us. We are far too much like them. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. Well, he became a harm to the kingdom of the devil, and so he was harmed by the devil. It was his wife who was then able to go in after his death and see the gospel propagate among the people that killed her husband. Praise God. It's John G. Payton, uh, who you've had in a, a biography of in the bulletins before. It's John Payton uh, who went to Vanuatu, what was then called the New Hebrides. Now, now we've told stories about him before, but I, I, I'm bringing this in just to show the bankrupt idiocy of the modern Darwinistic mindset and the glorious, hope-filled gospel mindset of the Christian missionary. In 1833, Charles Darwin doesn't get a lot of airtime in churches, does he? Old Charles. Uh, Charles Darwin, the only time I'll probably mention him. Charles Darwin went into the South Sea, and he was looking in Vanuatu for the so-called missing link. You're allowed to be offended by that if your ancestors are from the South Seas, just by the way. 
This Englishman goes into your homeland looking for the missing link. And as he studied the cannibals who lived there, he concluded, this very intellectual man, he concluded that the creatures there were any, uh, uh, that no creatures anywhere were more primitive than here in the South Seas. And he he was convinced that nothing on earth could possibly lift them to a higher level. There you go. That's the Darwinistic conclusion. He thought that he had indeed found a link in the evolutionary chain lower than that which he had begun to look for. There you go. This would now fit his theory of evolution. 34 years later, Darwin returned back to those same islands to continue his studies. And to his amazement, he found and discovered churches, schools, and homes occupied by some of those very same former cannibals. In fact, he said, many frequently gathered to sing hymns to this Christ. The reason was soon learned. Missionary John G. Payton had been there proclaiming the truths of salvation, and Darwin was so moved by their transformation that he made a generous contribution to the London Missionary Society. Darwin's missing link remained missing. John Payton wrote in his life, Let me record my immovable conviction that this is the noblest service in which any human being can ever spend himself or be spent. And that if God gave my life to be lived all over again, I would without one quiver of hesitation lay it on the altar of Christ that he might use me and use my life as before in similar ministries of love especially among those nations that have never heard the name of Jesus. I deeply rejoice when I pray that God would turn my children's heart to the mission fields and that he may open their way and make it their pride and joy to live and die in carrying Jesus and his gospel to the hearts of the heathen world. Do you see the difference in a materialistic worldview and the worldview shaped by the hope of the gospel of God to mankind. Peace on earth with those to, to, to those with whom God is pleased. And now as we, we just close here, not all Christians will be called to be cross-cultural, transnational, and people group missionaries. And therefore, we will be sending missionaries, training missionaries, supporting missionaries. However... Not all of us will be going. Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of the late Jim Elliot, Elizabeth Elliot, who became herself a missionary, said this to those Christians at home. Maybe this is you. You, you want to go on missions and it's not yet. God has not opened that door. You want to go. Your heart bleeds as you pray for the lost billions in their sin, idolatry, and ignorance. You wish to go and yet God has not yet opened those doors. Maybe, maybe, maybe missions just sounds amazing and inspiring and motivating to you, but you're not gifted or qualified to go and do that kind of work. Listen to what Elizabeth Elliot's wise counsel is. Does it make sense to pray for guidance about the future if we are not obeying in the thing that lies before us today? How many of the momentous events in Scripture depended simply on one person's seemingly small act of obedience? Rest assured, do what God tells you to do now and depend on it. You will be shown what to do next. The application for any hopeful, 
hopeful missionaries into the future is to become the greatest church member you could possibly be where you are. The most zealous prayer and evangelist where you are. That's what Paul did before he was sent out of that church to the nations. Let's, let, let's commit to doing that whether or not we're called. Let's commit to doing that and praying that God would raise up those whom he will send. And if you are unsaved, you're not a Christian, you have no heart for missions, you kind of hate it because it interacts, you know, it, 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 it gets in the way of other respectable cultures. Maybe, maybe you've lived your whole life against Jesus and you know you're in your sin. Maybe you thought you were a Christian until fairly recently and you understand that you're not. Every single one of us, every single one of you who are not yet a Christian must place your faith in Jesus Christ. And when you do, when you, when you rest on him in your soul, Simply rely on his promises to be true when he says he can save you. If you do that, you will immediately be transferred into his kingdom and immediately forgiven by the God who created you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the beauty and the glory and the blood and the gore of world missions. And we see even in the very first and earliest missions of, of Paul and his men that it was a gory, bloody, hard work. And yet, God, it is filled with glory because it carries the gospel to the unreached. We pray, Lord God, we thank you that we are able to have our hand in this work, that as a church we support missions and we, we go on missions and we pray, Lord God, that you would increase and multiply all of our fruit into the future as we pray about missions and as we are, we are convicted with the importance and centrality of world missions to the task of the local church. Father God, would you make us generous? Would you make us willing to go? Would you make us, would you make us prayerful? And Lord God, I ask also that you would save sinners among us today, those who are unbelievers, who, who, who are just trying to live their own life and trying to keep God out of their thinking. Would you save them? Would you give them a new heart? Would you today uh, implant them into the saving work of Jesus Christ? Would you bring them to praise the same God that we praise here? Lord God, would you continue to save, continue to save, continue to save, and continue to grow this church as we see people saved and sent to the mission field. Lord God, we praise you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.